You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Manny Mahadevan, who is the founder and CEO of Valor, which takes the tax optimization and asset protection tools of the ultra-wealthy and makes them accessible to everyone. On this week's episode, we talk about what are the main types of strategies right now for tax mitigation and what are the pros and cons of each? How does one plan differently for realized versus unrealized gains? What advantage for tax mitigation does the top 0.1% have that the rest of us do not? What are the options or differences for picking a strategy if it is before a transaction is done versus if it is after and much more? Now remember, please consult legal experts, your accounts, everyone before implementing anything. This is just for informational purposes only. All right. This is a great episode. Probably going to listen to it multiple times, so might as well just dive in. Let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Hi, everyone. I'm super excited about today's episode. I'm here with Mani Mahadevan. Uh, We're going to there's a lot of questions that come around taxes here in Silicon Valley, mergers, acquisitions, pre-IP, all these things. There's so many that I get emailed on a weekly basis. Can you bring in some expert? Can you bring in, we got questions. Luckily, I found that individual. So, Mani, I got a question for you. How did you go down this rabbit hole? How, how did you start a company focused on tax mitigation? It, it's a great question, Sean. Everyone always hates taxes, right? And they want to spend as little time as possible. So for me, it started with kind of personal experience solving it for myself. So I was fortunate, had been living in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and I worked for a startup that had done really well and was IPOing. And so while I was living in San Francisco, you know, as a Californian, you pay high taxes. I was trying to figure out what do I do when I have this big exit? And I felt fortunate. I thought it'd be easy. I have a lot of friends who've been through this situation. And so I started off asking them, what did they do? What do they recommend I should do? And it's funny, the most common answers I got from them were things like move to Texas to avoid California taxes. Now, you know, there's obviously a lot of hubbub about moving, leaving California, et cetera. Now, the sad news for a lot of these folks is California will still tax you if you earned your equity and things like that while living in California. So it's kind of, that was the first kind of initial issue I, that popped up was I thought it'd be easy, but the recommendations friends told me didn't work. So then I spent some time going a little bit deeper and I went to kind of the professional class, accountants, lawyers, asking them what to do because it was a meaningful enough gain for me that I didn't want to mess this up. And I thought, okay, this will be easy. These folks, you know, there's tons of wealth being created in Silicon Valley and more broadly that people will know what to do. But then when I started chatting with them, I was surprised to see how many different solutions I got from these folks and how uncertain they seemed when I'd asked them to compare it. I thought, you know, if this is a tax and estate lawyer, They'll know what to do here. And I was really surprised that they kind of, I heard tons of different answers and most of them had kind of their own favorite solution. It kind of seemed like one of those situations where these, these folks had a hammer that was their favorite solution and they saw everything as a nail. And so it made me fairly skeptical of when I'm having this big exit and I want to maximize this and kind of set my financial future up that I don't mess it up. So then I kind of felt like it's kind of incrementally getting pulled in. So then I started doing my own research and started building I've got a financial background. I started building my own models to compare these structures in a way that lawyers maybe don't have the skill set to. 
And what I found is I kind of realized that some of the lawyers were right about the structures that could help them reduce, like help me reduce my taxes. And some of them didn't really know what they were doing. And it's kind of going through that process that I figured out, okay, I learned a lot about these different structures, the opportunities, how you can use it. And the most surprising thing to me was the value that these structures can have in terms of increasing people's wealth and how people can better build their wealth, build their wealth and set up their financial future. But my friends, when I previously asked them, didn't know about this stuff. And it kind of the disparity between the value and people taking advantage of them kind of blew me away. And that's kind of where it originally started was me realizing how valuable this is and how few people know about them and could be better setting up their financial future by utilizing it. And that's kind of where it started was people aren't utilizing this. There's a lot of value. Is there an opportunity to help people? So on this journey, this path, what was some of the biggest discoveries that came about that kind of really hit you? Yeah, it's a great question. The first, the biggest takeaway for me was on a lot of these big exits, you can more than double your money by using some of these tax and estate planning structures. It's one of those things where you're, a lot of people, they're happy that they're getting to the exit, but people are really setting themselves up in a much worse position if they don't take advantage of these structures. Like just an example, if you're a New Yorker or Californian on a million dollar exit, you can take it away an additional two and a half million dollars after taxes over the course of your lifetime with tax and estate planning. And it's one of those things where people are excited about that million and it's a really big victory and kind of setting themselves up and putting you know their mind at rest. But by not taking those additional steps, you're giving away even more wealth. But most people don't even realize that. And that's kind of, that's the number one thing of just, it's so financially impactful, but most people don't even realize it. And they're kind of just leaving all this money and financial safety on the table. Maybe I heard it wrong, but did you say, you know, you have a million dollar win, you might pay, did you say half a million in tax or two and a half million in tax? What was that number that you said there? You can create an additional two and a half million dollars in after tax wealth by using tax planning structures versus not using it. So if you don't do anything, you think, and you're just happy with that million dollar exit, you're leaving potentially more than two and a half or three X that amount on the table by not working through these and thinking about these tax planning. And that's kind of the thing that most people don't realize. Most people think it's small potatoes and it's maybe a small amount of their exit they're leaving on the table. The reality is it's because of compounding, actually leaving significantly more. It's really life-changing wealth. And that's kind of what drew me in is I hadn't, when you chat with a lot of these accountants and lawyers and you'll hear that it's valuable to do this, but it's hard to understand what does it actually mean? But then when you start to look at these numbers, and it is truly life-changing wealth. And most people just don't appreciate or understand it or aware of that. And that's it's really putting them at just a significant disadvantage. I'm not sure what my next question should be. It should, should it be, what are the strategies that the, that the billionaires favor? Or is it, hey, what you just mentioned right there, can the middle class use on a yearly basis? Go for either. Yeah, it's... It's a great question of like, what do billionaires use here? And the reality is most of the strategies that billionaires use are applicable to the middle class. Now, one of the things that became apparent to me when I was chatting with lawyers and accountants is they would say that, you know, typically they only work with folks who are worth, you know, high high eight figures or nine figures. But the part that stood out to me was when I built out models to kind of look at what is the value of this, I could see that it was worth significant amount of money to even those in the middle class. Just the lawyers didn't have an incentive to serve them. 
And so kind of it's an interesting piece of the people who utilize these strategies really well are billionaires. And this is why most months you probably see a story in the New York Times, the Washington Post, ProPublica about how billionaires are using kind of tax and estates legal structures to avoid taxes. There's been a lot of stuff in ProPublica. They've written about Phil Knight, Mark Zuckerberg. It's common, you know, and I'd say probably 99 out of the 100 richest Americans are using these structures. But if you go to the middle class, I'll guarantee you nine out of 100 aren't using these structures to build wealth, even though they should. And this is the disparity of how people build wealth. There's kind of the idea behind capitalism is that if you create value, you can accrue value. And that alignment creates value for the individual as well as society. But part of the challenge we have in today's tax code is it's so complicated that unless you're one of those wealthy folks, a lot of these structures are inaccessible. So it becomes really hard to build wealth unless you have that huge kind of legal and accounting team to figure out what these opportunities are and ensure that you take care of them. Can you kind of give us an example of maybe a strategy or or that tax mitigator does for that 0.1% of high net worth individuals? Yeah, absolutely. So the most kind of common strategy you see, or one of the most common you see for the kind of 0.01% of uh, Americans, it's called a grant retained annuity trust. And it helps people avoid the estate tax. So the idea behind the estate tax is that the government is trying to tax inherited wealth on. So at the federal level, each individual can pass on $12 million gift tax-free to the next generation and not pay any taxes on that. Above the $12 million, you're supposed to pay taxes. And that it gets pretty quickly to paying a 40% tax federally on amounts that you gift over $12 million. And the idea is beyond that, they haven't earned it, they don't need it. And so that money is better uh, distributed back to society. Now, the reality is with kind of the simple tax planning structure, the grant retained annuity trust, also called a GRAT, it's very easy to avoid paying any estate taxes at all. And this is kind of the general, at least 99 out of the richest 100 Americans use GRATs, just to show that kind of the level of how widely used it is, because it's so powerful. Now, kind of the the interesting thing about GRATs is the reason they exist is because of an of a congressional rule change. Historically, the government was more effective in actually taxing large inherited wealth. They passed, there used to be the previous best structure that wealthy people used to avoid taxes was called the GRIT, Grantor Retained Inherited Trust. Now, as part of a congressional law that was changed, it actually changed IRS regulations and how they viewed kind of interest rates and taxable income. And actually the family behind Walmart, the Walton family, ended up suing the IRS. And they essentially said, because of those changes, there's a different way that the government has to account for kind of growth rates and what is being passed on to future generations. And the Waltons actually won at the Supreme Court. When they won, this is kind of really where grats became popularized. They're sometimes known as the Walton grat. And the way that it works is that, let's just say you have an asset, Sean, that's today the present value is worth a million dollars, but you think it'll be worth $10 million. You can set up a grat for yourself for two years. And the way it's kind of at the simplistic level is you're going to set up for each of the two years and it's going to pay you $500,000 a year plus the government's interest rate. The government's interest rate is pretty nominal. And so what it's doing is it's paying you back the original amount that you put into the trust. You put in a million dollars of assets. That's what they're worth today. And each year it's paying you $500,000. It's effectively paying you out the million dollars plus the government's interest rate. All the appreciation in there, so when it goes from 1 million to 10 million, 
that $9 million of appreciation can pass on to your heirs. So your children, folks like that, or a trust, and it doesn't count towards your lifetime gift exemption. So that $12 million that you have, you still have that $12 million. So in this scenario, you could pass on $9 million to your kids and have that $9 million count as $0 towards your lifetime gift exemption and owe no estate tax on it. And kind of the, the reality of this is, A, most folks that are at this level of wealth have some type of highly appreciating asset or private asset that may be valued at a lower rate with kind of an accounting gimmick. And even, and even beyond that, let's just say they're invested in the market. The government's interest rate is so low. For instance, it's currently 3.6% that let's just say you get normal market returns of the S&P historically averages 10.2%. That entire delta between 10.2% and 36 can pass on to your heirs every year, estate tax-free, and without counting towards your life, lifetime gift exemption. So it becomes very, this is where it's one of those, we talk about this tax being real and the idea of taxing inherited wealth. The reality, it's, it's kind of all talk with no meat behind it because it's just very easy to avoid. And most of these wealthy families do choose to avoid it. So you gave an amazing example for that, you know, that 0.1%. But what about the kind of tools that can be used by the middle class, the everyday person? And I mean, if there's more than one, please tell them all. I mean, this is, this, let's yeah. go, let's go deep here. Yeah. And so let's shift to kind of to what helps kind of the middle class. It's most of the middle class isn't worried about passing on more than $12 million to their kids, right? They're kind of more focused on how do they reduce their income or capital gains taxes. And so this is, they're more focused on tax planning and kind of a lot of the common strategies you see here are how do you reduce capital gains and how do you reduce income taxes? So start with capital gains taxes. Now, kind of, you see a lot of common strategies here uh, and most of these work, the more appreciated an asset is, the more powerful this is. So as an example, if you have an asset that you invested in at $100,000 and is worth $200,000 compared to you have an asset that you invest 100,000 in and it's worth $500,000, that latter asset that's worth $500,000, there's more powerful tax planning strategies because there's more taxable income. Essentially, the government in today's world on capital gains, they tax the value you sell an asset for minus the cost basis. And so the higher that appreciation, there's more opportunity and more work you can do to reduce your taxes. So kind of a couple of common strategies, well, I'll talk through kind of two of the common ones on capital, capital gains. One is a charitable remainder trust, and one is an opportunity zone. So charitable remainder trusts, they're actually very similar to IRAs, if folks are familiar with them. Similar to an IRA, it's, it's a tax-exempt trust structure. So what this means are gains inside of it are not taxed. And similar to an IRA, you only get taxed when you pull money out of it. So the way that folks will use this is, let's take an example of, let's say you're a Californian who you have a zero cost basis asset. Maybe it's a stock that, you know, you're an executive of a company that's IPOing. It's worth a million dollars. If you were to sell it in your name to keep around numbers, you may owe a 35% long-term capital gains tax rate. So on that million dollars, $350,000 goes to the government and you keep 650,000. Instead, if you put that million dollar asset into a charitable remainder trust, when it's sold, the trust pays no taxes. So you can sell your million dollar asset to effectively diversify it and reinvest the entire million. And then this is where the power of compound wealth takes off, right? If you have a million dollars invested in the market versus $650,000, that million dollars is going to grow a lot faster and that growth is going to accelerate over time, creating more wealth for yourself. And that's kind of, it's the, and this is where kind of in a general, the example I used earlier, a person who has a million dollar exit on 
it was a no cost basis item in California and New York at Lifetime, they might create an additional two and a half million dollars or more over after tax using a charitable remainder trust versus if they had done nothing. And it's simply because they can sell the asset tax-free and keep on growing it on a tax-free basis. Now, they will pay taxes when they pull money out of the trust and get it distributed back to themselves. But instead of paying those taxes up front, they can defer those taxes and reinvest it to create more wealth for their future. That's kind of a very common one. It's very commonly used for appreciated assets. Or if people are trying to, if they're inheriting an IRA, because of there's been changes, and this is probably another common kind of situation for a lot of kind of the middle class is they may be inheriting some money from their parents when they pass away from their IRA. Their parents maybe didn't deplete their IRA. Now, historically, people have been able to use what's called a stretch IRA or roll over their IRA, take their parents' IRA and push it into their IRA. Now, Trump, as part of the SECURE Act, actually passed a law so that you can't do that anymore. And as a result, it means that people have to pull their IRAs out within 10 years of inheriting it from their parents. And on the withdrawals, they're paying ordinary income tax rates. And now IRAs, like kind of the name of the game with IRAs, shareable remainder trusts, is assets that grow in a tax-free environment grow faster than assets that grow in a tax environment. Like nothing too crazy. That's the fundamental underpinning of how these structures create value for you. Now, the big advantage is a lot of, since the rule change in 2020, a lot of kind of folks that are thinking about tax planning, instead of passing on their IRA to their children, they'll pass on their IRA to a charitable remainder trust that their children are beneficiaries. Of. And the benefit of this is that their kids can keep the amount, some of the assets from the IRA in the charitable remainder trust longer than 10 years and keep it compounding. Because otherwise, if they have to pull all that money out within 10 years, they're going to pull it all out. And they're going to pay ordinary income tax rates, which you know for most folks is going to range between 30 to 50%. So they're going to lose somewhere between half to a third of their principal. And then those assets are going to be invested in taxable accounts. So they'll grow slower versus if they if their parents send it to a charitable remainder trust, they're going to be able to A, defer those taxes. So keep a larger principal that grows and keep it growing in a tax exempt structure. So that's kind of another scenario. Kind of a third situation that people have been using, it's called opportunity zones. So this is, it's kind of an interesting and somewhat new tax planning structure where it was created in 2017 under Trump as well. The idea behind it is to encourage investment in underinvested city infrastructure area. The idea is that by encouraging people to invest in real estate in cities, areas that haven't gotten as much investment as the government wants, they can improve the quality of life in those areas and give people a tax break. So the way that it works is if within, if you roll over your capital gains into an opportunity zone within the allotted time, you can avoid capital gains on those taxes until 2026, until you pay your 2026 taxes. So right now, right, it's 2022. So instead of paying taxes on that gain now, you could roll over those proceeds from the sale of that million dollar startup IPO equity that's IPO'd, put it into an opportunity zone and defer those taxes until 2026. So you get a more tax-free growth. And the second part of an opportunity zone is if you hold it for 10 years, your increase in the opportunity zone asset won't won't be taxable. So you'll essentially get a step up in basis from if you invested $500,000 in the opportunity zone and in 10 years it's worth a million dollars, your cost basis gets stepped up to a million. So you won't have to pay taxes when you sell an opportunity zone if you hold it for long enough. Now, the tricky part about opportunity zones is there's been a lot of capital that's flooded into the market. 
since it was created in 2017, because the tax breaks are pretty powerful. And the tricky part is we don't actually know what the returns on these structures are. There's been a lot of potentially overinvestment and there's a limited amount of areas that accept that are qualified opportunity zones. And there's been a lot of capital. So there's a little bit of, you, we know what the tax breaks are, but we don't know what the return profile of this looks like because we still haven't seen a full 10-year even cycle play out. And we won't for another five years. But it's, it is a great kind of opportunity for folks that have a lot of capital gains and have already realized it and may not, and may be interested in investing in real estate in a hands-off way. On the other hand, shareable remainder trust kind of, it enables you to invest in real estate, the stock market, crypto, kind of a, an assortment of assets, and it's a more, more predictable return profile. Are there any others? I'm, I'm not sure how many tools there are in the toolbox, but is that like 90% of the solutions right there? Or are there still a lot of other ones? There's still a lot of other ones. This is kind of the, the, the crazy part about this is there is, it's in some sense, an almost endless list of these opportunities. You know, there's other common ones where there's a lot of, there's a long tail of real estate things. People use things like conservation easements. This came up more, very recently of Trump has used conservation easements and things like on his golf courses to reduce his taxable income. Uh, there's all sorts of other depreciation from real estate, single family rentals. Another common area that also aligns with kind of a lot of people's personal views and broader things that they want to do in the world is using charitable deductions. So a lot of people, it, it's very common you hear ultra high net worth people have foundations, donor advised funds that they have that in their, people see these things as purely altruistic, but there's also candidly a huge tax advantage to using these structures. You can, they're kind of common routes that people go, they often use things called foundations or charitable lead annuity trusts to essentially reduce their taxable income. And what they do is if you give, let's just say you give $100,000 to your foundation or $100,000 to your charitable lead annuity trust, you can reduce your taxable income this year by up to $100,000. So it's a, you can do good in the world by giving money to charity and reducing your taxable income. And now you take it an even step further, there's ways that you can, with some of these particularly charitable lead annuity trusts where you can, you're not even actually giving money to charity right now. The way a charitable lead annuity trust works is, let's say you give a million dollars to a charitable lead annuity trust, and this trust is set up for 25 years. What you're actually doing is you're promising to give present day value of a million dollars to charitable organizations over the next 25 years. Now, you're not giving it all at once. You're probably actually backloading it. But the kind of financial arbitrage of this is you get an upfront charitable deduction of a million dollars today. So you put a million dollars into this trust. That million dollars in the trust can actually be invested into the market, real estate, crypto, whatever asset class you're interested in. You get an upfront million dollar charitable deduction. Now, this trust every year, it's going to give off a charitable donation to potentially your foundation, your donor advice fund or let's say the Red Cross. So it's giving a small amount every year. And then at the end of the trust, so in 25 years when it's ended, whatever is left in the trust comes back to you. So the kind of the big benefit is you put money in this trust, it's getting reinvested in the market, but you get to reduce your taxable income with a charitable deduction today. So it's commonly used by folks who have high tax income or a really high capital gains year or bonus year or a lot of short-term capital gains. So we've seen a lot of folks particularly in kind of crypto or option traders or folks who get a lot of W-2 bonuses, use this when they don't plan to spend the money now, but they want to reduce their taxable income and reinvest it in kind of a tax-favored environment. Okay. If you have any others that you want to share, please do. If not, I'm also really curious, 
say I'm about to have this exit or I'm at that company, how long in advance is needed to prepare yeah. to actually doing this? Can it happen after the transaction? Does it have to happen before the transaction? A month, six months, a year? When yeah. do conversations need to start? Yeah, so this is, uh, it's a great question. And this is kind of generally the sooner you do things, the better it is. The the kind of the real bright line, and that's where it kind of a gray answer. The real bright line is before or after you commit to selling the asset. There are once you've committed to selling the asset, your options change. And, and the reality of it is once you've committed to selling the asset, you have less options and the options tend to be less kind of financially advantageous. So the sooner you do planning, the better off and the more you, the kind of more optimization you can do. But critically, you want to just kind of get this, these things set up before you financially agree to sell an asset, because that's what gives you kind of the maximum opportunity. So for instance, the charitable remainder trust, as an example that we've brought up, you want to you want to set up the charitable remainder trust and move the asset you plan to sell into the charitable remainder trust before you commit to selling the asset. As long as you do that, you can get advantage of selling in a tax-free environment. Things like the GRAT that I mentioned, it, the earlier you do it, that you contribute an asset that's and when the low its valuation is lower, the more financially advantageous it's going to be. Earlier is better. But if you're just focused kind of for let's just say kind of the middle class of America, if you're focused on tax planning, the key thing is before you sell the asset or before if you're looking at high ordinary income or high bonus before the end of the tax calendar year. Because that's when you can use charitable deductions, depreciation for the calendar year to reduce your taxable income and put that money to work, reinvest it in the market, et cetera. Okay, and, and when I'm thinking about what solution, is it more based on the size? Is it more based on how much control I want? Is it more based on the timing? What are kind of the parameters that kind of a, are the decision makers into which of these routes mentioned are norm, you know you go in? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I'd say it's, so. There's kind of a lot of inputs. I'd say some of the basic ones are. A, starting with what are you focused on? So are you focused kind of on tax planning? So maximizing the assets for your own use? Are you focused on estate planning? So how much assets do you pass on to your kids? Or dynasty planning where you're thinking multiple generations from now? So for each of those solutions, there's different solutions that people go with. Now, once you get kind of down to that, let's say you're focused on tax planning. A lot of it comes down to what asset are you focused on? Are you focused on ordinary income? Do you have real estate? Because for each of those kind of categories of assets or income, there's different solutions that may apply or may not apply, which starts to window down your opportunities. Kind of once you've between those two parameters kind of narrowed it down, then it becomes comes down to typically some version of how big of an exit are you talking about or how much money? So kind of what is the, the cost and expenses that make sense there? What is kind of your other needs like liquidity? When do you want money out? Because these different structures have different timelines. So if you want money sooner, you have probably less options versus the longer time horizon you have, the more options it opens up. So it's at the highest level, it's really the combination of what problem are you solving? Are you solving for capital and income taxes or estate taxes? What type of asset is it? And then it becomes more of the micro of how much control, when do you need liquidity? And then kind of some other trade-offs of when do you want money? What do you want to invest in? And at the very, very beginning of the conversation, you had mentioned, you know, moving to Texas. I mean, right now, everyone is leaving Silicon Valley. So is that not a good option? It's, it is a simple option. This is where, now, the reality is you can use some of these 
many of these tax structures to avoid state taxes. You can't, and it's just additional overhead. A lot of this stuff, when people talk about moving to Texas, moving to Florida from Silicon Valley, New York to avoid taxes, it's just simple. So it's a simple way to avoid those taxes potentially, but you can also use trust to do so. And this is what a lot of the really kind of billionaires and ultra high net worth individuals do is most of their wealth is held in trust in states like Nevada and South Dakota that don't have any state taxes. And because the income is taxed by the owner, in this case, these trusts, they're able to avoid those taxes anyway. And so this is, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, this is the broad challenge we see with the tax code is it seems like there's two rules and two different games that people are playing. There's the way that kind of, if you're a billionaire or you have a team of lawyers and accountants, the game that you they play, and then there's what everyone else plays. And, you know, this is, you see this in kind of, you know, how Peter Thiel took advantage of the of Roth IRAs, or you see this in how they talk about how Phil Knight and Mark Zuckerberg were able, able to avoid taxes, and they use these different types of trusts. And it's, for the average person, this stuff isn't, hasn't historically been accessible because lawyers are expensive, accountants are expensive, and most folks don't even think that it's something that'll apply to them. Now, the reality is it does. And this is kind of where the real wealth building opportunities are in today's world as ETFs, robo-advisors kind of provide an equal and ground for people to invest at a high quality level. It's more of how to reduce your costs and things like taxes. To go to your original piece, it, the answer is yes, maybe. You don't really, in many cases, need to move out of California to avoid California taxes. It does make it a little bit more complicated. And this is kind of, we're seeing this new generation of tech companies, kind of like ourselves, who it's trying to reduce that burden so that it's you can re- remove that historic kind of barrier to entry for the middle class and the average person to take advantage of these structures so that their choices aren't stay in California and pay high taxes or move to Texas or Florida. That's interesting. What about Puerto Rico? That's been coming up a little bit in the news. What What are the thoughts there? It's really interesting. I'd say it's like Puerto Rico, Dubai, Portugal are probably three of these like really hot and more on the extreme end of what people are doing to avoid taxes. Puerto Rico is particularly interesting because it's a U.S. territory. So you don't have to give up your U.S. citizenship, things like that to avoid taxes. It's, it's an interesting one. So candidly, we've had some clients who have, have moved to Puerto Rico. It is, I would say, a strong lifestyle change. It is something where there are requirements on how long you have to spend in Puerto Rico and what you're and kind of the type of income that you're making. So it is something that is on a tax side, very can be very advantageous if you're earning kind of income in the right categories. But it's a, it's a challenging lifestyle. This is one of those, a lot of the folks we've worked with who have moved to Puerto Rico, can we have found the lifestyle is not for them? But for some people, the financial benefits are clearly worth it. And on the flip side of that, you are starting to see more and more, of, I think particularly in a lot of, you're seeing a lot in the crypto world, not as much on the tech world, but more in kind of the financial services space. Some folks move out there. Again, remote work changes a lot of this. You know, otherwise, historically, for financial services, you want to be in kind of the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, New York, Connecticut, some of these key hotspots. But remote work's really changing that. And you're seeing people move to Puerto Rico and still conduct their business. And so people are doing it, haven't seen it really done at a large scale. I think some of that's just broadly the infrastructure and quality of life there. So it's definitely doable. Financial benefits are very significant for folks if they're willing to make a longer commitment. But the, the real trade-off is more quality of life. And let's go back to the idea of that, that startup 
you know, maybe they're going to exit two, three years from now, but you have that early employee, that early angel investor is sitting on all these shares and they're going, oh my gosh, I got five, 10 million here, but I have to drive Uber on the weekends to pay for my, my child's college fees. And, you know, they're like, okay, I just want to sell some of these shares in the secondary. Is there any tax solutions for them or things they should be thinking of? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, if you're like an angel investor or have early company equity, so whether it's from like a startup or another early stage, particularly if it's a C corporation, there's a ton of tax opportunities. Now, the number one tax opportunity and probably the best kind of tax opportunity, it's called Qualified Small Business Stock Exemption or QSBS. This is where if you meet a certain requirement, such as you invested in the company before it had 50 million in net assets, it's a C corporation based in the US. And it operates in certain industries, most tech companies qualify, and you've held the shares for five years, you can avoid $10 million or more in federal and state taxes. That's kind of, it's really candidly the best tax break around where for most states, so the majority of states will also follow this federal rule, but you can avoid in every state, you can avoid federal capital gains taxes. And in almost all states, you can avoid state capital gains taxes. And this is where it's, you don't need to get very fancy with trusts and things like that. If you have under $10 million, you just need to file your taxes correctly. And this is where it's, you can either do it on your own or get an accountant's help to, to file that. And you can avoid up to taxes on your first $10 million of gains pretty simply. If you have more than $10 million of gains, this is where there's a little bit of there's different opportunities where you can actually increase that $10 million exemption. So QSBS, the idea is to give someone $10 million of capital gains free income per individual per asset. But you can use kind of, you can gift those assets to a family member, such as a kid. Let's say you have $20 million. Let's say you have $30 million you, and you have two kids. You could gift $10 million to each of your kids and they could claim their own $10 million QSBS exemption. So now all of a sudden you've been able to sell $30 million of this equity and avoid federal and state taxes on it. But let's say you don't have kids or family members you don't want to give it to. There's also certain trusts that under the tax code can claim their own QSPS exemption. And you can in the future potentially get that money back. So this is where it's, you can put that money in a trust. That trust can sell it, get its own $10 million exemption. In the future, you might be able to benefit from it. If you have QSPS eligible stock, it's potentially avoid almost all taxes on the sale. If you can't, if QSBS doesn't apply, this is where, kind of as we mentioned earlier, there's plenty of other great opportunities like charitable remainder trust, opportunity zones, using charitable deductions or depreciation to, to sell the asset so you can diversify, but reduce your taxable income to the government so you can reinvest all or most of those proceeds to create more long-term wealth for yourself in the future. Okay. And now realized gains versus unrealized gains. How do you plan for those differently? Or is it pretty similar. They, they are very different. And this is where I'd say it's unrealized gains. You can do more, you have more options and better ROI options. So in other words, you'd rather have unrealized gains than realized income. After income has been realized, whether it's ordinary income or an asset you've already sold, because it's already been realized, you have less maneuverability. The options you have typically are worth less. In unrealized gains, kind of the options are it's really how do you sell this in a tax exempt environment if you don't need the upfront liquidity? And again, charitable remainder trust, opportunity zones are very common structures. If it's realized gains, the kind of the two ways people typically try to reduce their taxable income is charitable deductions and depreciation. And so charitable deductions, 
in some end, you're giving money to charity. So that may align with your values. You may not care about it. It really depends on your situation. But there is, can be huge financial advantages. Common structure here is for people to use, mentioned this before, charitable lead annuity trust. It's a way of getting an upfront charitable deduction now to reduce your taxable income, reinvest the money, and over time, give out that charitable donation. And in the end, you can create a lot of value for yourself. If you have a long time horizon, a lot of at the kind of, let's just say, once you start to get to eight, nine figures, a lot of folks will set up their own foundations, probably more in the nine figures where, and this is where it's, you want to have a, a cause or something that you care about. And this enables you to, you can give money to your own foundation and you can put it towards causes or things that you think will do better in the world and are better use of tax dollars. So instead of paying taxes and give it to the government, you can set up a foundation. It has to be approved. The foundation has to be approved as a, uh, as a charitable entity by the government, but you see all sorts of these foundations with different causes from like sports programs to hiking, to food, to mentorship, to art, right? A lot of times this is where ultra high net worth individuals, they find ways to essentially put money towards things that they already enjoy and get a tax write-off. And this is kind of charitable lead annuity trusts and foundations are a great way to do so. But candidly, they tend to be a little bit lower ROI compared to solutions you have for unrealized gains. And it's just kind of an unfortunate reality of after it's been realized, you have less options and poor ROI options. Okay. Now you also had mentioned crypto quite a bit. Is crypto in its own category or is can it be looped in with all these other solutions that, as, as treated? I mean, how if you have crypto gains, how do you look at things? Yeah. So crypto is in most cases very similar to most capital gains. The the kind of the key things to call out are crypto is not a security right now. Now there's a lot of Kind of potential movement on this and crypto is getting a lot of scrutiny but because crypto isn't a isn't a security this means things like qsbs don't apply so to tokens qsbs isn't an option but another option that is open because it's not a security is you can do wash trading so typically wash trading is you can't buy an, the same asset within 30 days of selling it and kind of get the tax loss basis so let's say you buy an asset at hundred dollars and it drops down to, to fifty dollars if you sell it at $50, you can take a loss on the item and potentially reduce your gains for the year. But if within selling that same stock at $50, you buy it, you can't take that tax loss of the stock going from $100 to $50 because it's not allowed. It's called wash trading and it's not allowed for securities. On the other hand, with crypto, let's say you bought Bitcoin at $50,000. It's now $22,000. You could sell it at $22,000, same day buy it back at $22,000 and use the loss from $50,000 to $22,000 to reduce your capital gains for the year. So that's kind of one practical thing. But on the other side of, if you have unrealized, we've worked with a lot of like clients who have huge crypto gains. And this is where you see a lot of folks taking advantage of charitable remainder trusts. And one kind of really interesting thing about the crypto community is the folks that have done fairly well in crypto, they tend to be people who go down their own rabbit holes. And they're very focused on, they're very, tend to be very analytical. And many of them aren't huge kind of, there's, there tends to be a very libertarian bent in the crypto community. So they tend to not be as pro taxes as other segments. And so what we've seen is a lot of these folks come in having done a ton of research on what are these tax planning opportunities. And so compared to the average American, they're actually fairly sophisticated on the tax front to see of what they can reduce. And you see a lot of, in the crypto community, charitable remainder trusts are a very common tax planning tool for people to sell their crypto, kind of avoid those taxes when they sell the asset, diversify it, potentially invest in more crypto or other assets and kind of 
set themselves up for the rest of their lives. So it's, it's in most cases, it's very similar to stocks and other securities, but there are a few nuances of that you're allowed wash trading today and that it doesn't apply to QSBS. But otherwise, all these other kind of structures and opportunities do seem to apply. Okay, so what questions should I be asking my wealth advisor, my lawyer, so that I can kind of gauge if they're in the know or not? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. And the kind of at the most basic level, you should be asking them, and first of all, to start with, this is so, and it's kind of presuming. So if you have a wealth advisor, you're probably building wealth. The number one kind of thing to where tax planning and estate planning comes into effect is you are building wealth. So starting with that, you should be asking your tax advisor, your investment advisor of how can I reduce my taxes and seeing the types of options that they, they come up with. And this is where some of them may just be, they may talk to deductions, right? And you'll see this is a lot of accountants. Most accountants are primarily focused on how do they help you file your taxes and deductions, but they aren't thinking about some of these bigger structures. And so seeing what suggestions they apply, is it just maybe give a little bit to charity and how are they saying approach that? Is it just making sure you get your deductions and the standard versus kind of itemized? Then they're probably not thinking about some of these higher and potentially higher ROI. That's, I think, the first signal. If they start to talk to you about trusts kind of or tax advantage structures, then you then it, the, you're in a good chance that they may know what they're talking about. And starting to ask them, okay, so diving into those and asking them of which assets would be best able to take advantage of this, of which assets do I have that have a lot of unrealized gains that may make sense to diversify? And how should I think about diversifying it? Those questions of if they're able to answer those things and talk about charitable rate of trust, opportunity zones, or uh, real estate assets with depreciation, then you, you, you should feel more comfortable that you're in good hands, and they know what they're talking about. If not, it may be worth asking them to see if there's someone in their network who can help, whether it's tax planning accountant, lawyer, or seeing if they can do their own research. Because this is kind of a lot of advisors in today's world are realizing that you know, with the growth of robo-advisory and remote work, that they actually have to offer more than just telling you what to invest in or the local relationship to provide, to justify their value. That this is something that more and more of these high quality advisors are providing tax planning and giving you kind of ideas about what you could do to better build your wealth beyond how much you save and what you invest in. And Manny, you've given us so much information today, but you haven't told us about you, your company, what you're working on. Can you give us a little bit of information on you know what you're building? Yeah, of, co- of course, Sean. And so as I mentioned up front, so a lot of this started with my own personal story of I was fortunate working for a company that did very well. And I was trying to figure out how do I set myself up and maximize this opportunity? And kind of the idea behind my company, Valor, is how do you make these tax planning and wealth building tools that billionaires like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Knight use seamless and accessible to everyone? The whole idea is we want to make it, we want to use technology so that everyone can easily figure out what is the best structure for themselves. Um, how can they set it up and administer these things seamlessly and a fraction of the cost so that everyone can build wealth kind of in an efficient way. And the way that I personally think about it, our mission is so the big reason I the big reason I believe in capitalism is I think capitalism a lot aligns incentives so that innovators and people who create value grow wealth and create value for society. Part of the challenge in today's world is the tax code is so complicated that unless you're you know, a billionaire and you have a team of lawyers and accountants, you have no clue what's going on. And the reality is people can build their wealth by just having enough 
resource and it creates two tiers of capitalism. It creates those for the haves who they don't actually need to create value for the world. They can just play tax games and harvest those savings to grow their wealth more efficiently. And then it creates kind of a hard mode for those who don't have those resources and they're paying more taxes, their costs are higher. And so that they actually have to, it's much harder for them to catch up. And kind of Valor's goal is how do we enable everyone to build wealth in in the same way so that there isn't an advantage to having a billion dollars and having those teams of lawyers. It should truly be that wealth creation is tied to value creation. And that's kind of our mission is separate is flattening out the kind of the disparity that exists there and make it easy for everyone to build wealth and take care of their financial future. And that's, that's fantastic. Before wrapping it up, quick question for you. If you could change any tax law, what would it be? Oh man, it's a great question. There's so many, there's so many pieces there. The, The number one thing that I would change is really cut down kind of the amount of loopholes. And this is kind of like a, a broad one, is most of the challenges I see is that there's so many loopholes. And individually, each one seems like a great idea of to reduce it for give a deduction for this or a loophole if we want to encourage clean energy investment. But the challenge is, is the propensity of it leads to only that those with resources can take advantage of them. And so that's kind of generally the more complicated the tax law is, the worse I think it is because it just lends itself to being taken advantage by uh, ultra high net worth individuals. I think this is probably an unpopular though. If I had to focus on one area, say it's real estate. Real estate seems to be an asset class that disproportionately has just a ton of, of loopholes and tax opportunities, whether there's depreciation, segmentation of how people are able to reduce their taxes, 1031s, that it mostly just seems to inflate the the value and the asset value of people in the space and those with resources versus kind of the average American. And it's, yeah, I fundamentally think the tax code should be aligned to help people to A, in, give enough so the government can kind of fulfill its obligations to individuals, but it also should be supporting kind of giving a level playing field. And particularly in real estate, it's just so complicated and there's so many advantages relative to the value that's being created. It doesn't seem to kind of uh, bear out as to why that asset class gets so many more tax breaks relative to other areas. And Manny, if anyone wants to find out more about you, your company, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yeah, the best way to find out or to learn more about seeing how you could reduce your taxes or what opportunities are available is to go to valor.io, V-A-L-U-R.io. There, we have a lot of, we have guided planner tools where you can see what are tax and estate planning saving opportunities for you, read more about them, calculators where you can estimate what you can be saving so you can see how big these opportunities are and set it up kind of same day or jump on a phone with one of our kind of consultants. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, what I'm not doing this podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and a little bit of secondaries. You can find me on my LinkedIn, Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N, investment banker, or go to the website for this podcast, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. Please share this episode with your network. I mean, and with that, Manny, I want to thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Really appreciate it, Sean. Really enjoyed chatting with you and appreciate this. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.